Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Mike Bridenstine is based in Los Angeles, was raised in Iowa, but it was his time in between in Chicago that helped form him and his friendships as a comedian. Bridenstine has written a book about the rise of the alt-comedy scene in Chicago in the early 2000s, which included his role in starting up a stand-up and video collective called Blurds. Among them, Camille Nagiani, Kyle Kinane, T.J. Miller, and director Jordan Vogt-Roberts. Since going Hollywood, Bridenstine's credits have included multiple national TV ad campaigns, Adam Devine's House Party, and The Eric Andre Show. He's just released his second stand-up comedy album, Hustle, and sat down with me to talk about his career and how pivoting his podcast during the pandemic helped get him back into the game. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Pivoting at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! Last things first, congratulations on the album, Hustle. Thank you. You went back to Chicago to record this album. Yes. Now, I've known you for quite some time. This and is I... funny. I met you at the Lincoln Lodge <laughs> in Chicago. I remember the first thing you said to me. You said, you're Mike Bridenstine. This is my friend, John Mulaney. And then you introduced me. That was the first thing that you said to me. <laughs> I said, this is my friend, John Mulaney. Yeah, you walked into the Lincoln Lodge during JFL Chicago, and you pointed at me, and you told me who I was, uh-huh. and then you and then you told me who John Mulaney was, and introduced me. I, I like the fact that I didn't think you knew who John Mulaney was even then. I did know who he was because he'd done uh, uh, Chuck a few times, and I knew who you were because I'm a psychopath. <laughs> Okay, so, but I bring this up because I know you've told the story probably to me and probably to countless other people about how you ended up moving from Chicago to L.A. Okay. But what I don't know the story of is how you ended up in Chicago in the first place. I know you're from Iowa. Yes. How did you end up in Chicago first? So I started doing stand-up in Iowa City in college at a place called The Summit, and about three years after I graduated, Brooks Whelan, who listeners might know, also came out of that scene. I met Mike Holmes, comedian Mike Holmes, who you also know, in Iowa City. And when I was asking these touring comedians for advice about where to go, they were like, you have to go to a city. And Chicago, I, most of the, like a lot of the kids from the University of Iowa were from the suburbs of Chicago. It was either Chicago or Minneapolis is, is what I was is what I was thinking. And I knew Chicago more. I had visited. I liked the city. I didn't know much about Minneapolis. And when we first moved there, the scene was so small. I didn't know about the comedy bust or anything. There was no social media. So I thought that we had made a mistake. <laughs> but uh, and I and funny, you should mention that I I wrote a book about the history of the Chicago alt scene. And then excerpt is coming out in Chicago mag in January, where I tell this exact story okay. where I tell, where I tell why I moved from 
basically the, uh, the the day that I walked into the Lions Den open mic and saw Pete Holmes and Kumail and, you know, all of the Chicago comics, I just wandered into this place and kind of changed my life. Yeah, because even at that time, this is the mid-2000s, right? Uh, 2003 is when I first uh, saw the scene there, and I started doing comedy there every week in 2004. But at that time, I don't know that many people who were talking about Chicago as a stand-up city. It was Nobody. mostly known for the Second City Improv and Sketch, Improv Olympic. Yes, yep. It was all the Herald and Longform and Second City. If you would, when I started doing stand-up in Chicago, my coworkers would say, "Do you mean Second City?" Like they didn't. This is pre. Like they didn't talk about stand-up until like Dane Cook. Um, so I would say, "Do you know the thing Jerry Seinfeld does at the beginning of Seinfeld?" <laughs> and they'd be like, "Oh, okay." You just, just talking to him? Yeah, I just talking. It, it was just it had bottomed out in popularity. It just wasn't cool. And so uh, John Roy had won Star Search. And I mean, uh, that was it. That was for, that was about the only exposure that any, anything had happened there. Yeah. So who was the, who was the driving force then behind Blurds? Well, that was me. That was, uh, so my friend Rob Johnson, who I went, who was my roommate in college, wanted to start a blog site. And he's like, you and your comedian friends should do it. And so I was like, cool. And I offered up uh, Kumail and Jared Logan and uh, Mike Burns and Mike Holmes. And he said, no, you can ask other people. So I started asking like all of those other people. And then I met Jordan Vote Roberts at the Lincoln Lodge. And then he start, I saw the movies that he had made. It coincided with, at this point in time, was like 2006. So MySpace and YouTube was kind of exploding. And so he was a no-brainer. And I mean, all of those comics were the driving force, but I started that with, um, you know, my friends in, in Chicago. So, And the yeah. idea of it initially was blogging or was it making short films? So when we started it, Blurds meant blog nerds. Nate Craig came up with that name. And now it definitely means black nerds. We've we've been told that a million times, but <laughs> but it was but blo- everyone was talking about blogging, and so it was going to be blogs. And so the the twelve comedians involved in it, um, which you know people would know a lot, all of these names probably, uh, or most of these names. And if they don't, they should find the, the rest of them. But the but it was going to be blogging, and then Jordan was going to make videos for our launch party. And then the only thing that people cared about was those videos because they were so good. And it was uh, comedians doing their bits and then kind of acting them out like shorties watching shorties. And that became later mashup on Comedy Central. Right. And then, of course, Jordan Vogt Roberts went on to direct King Kong. King Kong, yes. Yeah. So. I I did a commercial that he directed during the pandemic. And so he's still out here doing stuff. But the stuff that you ended up doing with Mike Holmes, uh, aforementioned Holmesy, yes, uh, you started doing like musical stuff with him. That was not part of Blurds, or was that? Well, there was so that was it's it was Blurds, but yeah. So um, we were on a road trip. 
The song Mockingbird by Eminem was on the radio. Holmes had been on a kick about how Eminem only rapped about Kim, his mom, and Haley. And so I started rapping Kim and mom and Haley over the song. And then when he came in with the the chorus by singing it, I mean, we just, we were both dying laughing and we knew that it was something. And so we would do it during one of our acts at the Lincoln Lodge or at Chicago Underground Comedy. And Jordan filmed that as the, as our first Blurreds video for the launch party. And that, um, that was the one that got us on the front page of MySpace and basically got me to Los Angeles. Yeah. Okay. So I was just about to ask whether that was fueled by MySpace or by YouTube. And it was MySpace. That was MySpace. Yeah. That was, um, and so, Every and it started to go like mini viral on various like big in two thousand seven type sites like mm-hmm. Ebombs World and Daily Motion and Super Deluxe and so you would get like little bursts but when it got on the front page of the landing page of MySpace that was refreshed the page and there's ten thousand more views it was awesome and then you guys did some follow up videos right um with the, with songs yeah. We wrote every Red Hot Chili Peppers song ever, every Green Day song ever, okay, yeah. every Beastie Boys song ever. There were no videos for them, but we had, we supposedly had a record deal at Comedy Central. This was a very famous manager who was telling us uh, this, and uh, I don't know if this was just to make us happy while Mashup was happening, or if it was real, if it was ever real. But so Comedy Central's lawyers got scared off or something it was all uh, um it was a very famous man telling me lies i think <laughs> well you know it was fun to do what would the fear be would it be that the music was too similar that i mean right i mean i mean we've all heard of weird al yankovic before. right i was just about to say like <laughs> so i so it felt like a lie is what it mm-hmm. felt like so yeah we had a record deal at comedy central to do these and the lawyers of Comedy Central were like parody songs never been done as as I or it never was a thing I don't know I I wasn't involved in these meetings I don't know who gives these Hollywood managers the ability to lie like they do mm-hmm. but they but they're good at it and if they weren't then they wouldn't have those jobs So what happened to those songs or those song parodies We put them out and then you know tree falling in the woods you know, but where'd you put them out? Oh man, on I think that they were on iTunes for a while, and then mm-hmm. neither of us um, promoted it. I mean, it just kind of went away. I mean, uh, but it was it was fun to perform. I I think that the time has passed on those jokes. I don't I don't know if like a TikTok generation would even understand. I was just about to ask if you had ever considered trying to do it on TikTok. Just I put it out on I put it on TikTok just to see and it was you know pretty weak. I I mean I I I don't understand TikTok, but I put it on Instagram Reels where I've had mm-hmm. stuff get popular-ish. I mean, I've gotten you know uh tens of thousands of views, 50,000 views, 30,000 views every now and then. And this is like in the hundreds for the Chili Peppers one and for the Eminem one. So I'm thinking, "Oh, Whoever is watching these reels don't understand. I mean, it's is eight miles still in the cultural 
Because I, I mean, also I should move on probably. I mean, <laughs> you know? I, 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 I'm on TikTok and I feel like Mom's Spaghetti still pops up. You know what? Mom's Spaghetti is a re- is a disgustingly named restaurant. That is true. Yeah. May I mean I don't know. I, I maybe I don't have the right hashtags. Mm, hashtags. You gotta have those hashtags. Maybe maybe you just uh don't have the hustle. Maybe I don't have the hustle. Maybe I'm bad <laughs> at the internet. Hustle, the new comedy album by Mike Bridenstine. That's right. Uh, there's a track on there called Daddy Does. Yes. And uh my question is was that incident at New Faces? Yes, I was waiting in the wings of New Faces. Yes, because <laughs> you don't say where it was; you say yeah. the year. And I'm like, yeah. oh my god, that was probably New Faces in Montreal. It was one hundred percent New Faces in Montreal. Yeah. <laughs> that adds just so many more layers to it. I called him out on whoever we're talking about. I call this person out right dis, immediately. Just Corellia. <laughs> I think I call him Chris Bolia. I don't know what I say, but yeah. yeah, I called him out immediately and we had a good laugh over it. Uh, but he doesn't, re- he didn't remember it at the time. Mm-hmm. So definitely wouldn't remember now, but it's a very fun thing to tell people. They, uh, they've always had, if they know who I'm talking about, they will always, they've always had fun reactions to the story. Right. But when, when everything blew up in his face, I mean, he's back now because uh, white men, uh, can't be canceled. Uh, <laughs> but when things started blowing up in his face, did you immediately think of that moment or? I, it became like a way more fun to tell. I mean, that's the layer that it needs. If it's, if you had said that, or if it's somebody else from my new face, if Rory Scoble had done that, mm-hmm. people would be like, oh, oh, that's fun. He, we like him. He's nice. But you know, it's a guy that people are mad at, so it's way more fun. Right. I guess it'd be like if it turned out you had uh, tons of illegitimate children across America. And I was and young, going, bang, you're pregnant. Bang, yeah. you're pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I still have, I still, I wish I could bring that back as well, but I, I don't, I, that, I think that's another one that's time has passed. Okay. So, you know, speaking of managers and people telling you lies, when you did new faces and you had yes. to follow Chris yeah. D'Elia, yeah, who became who a superstar. murdered, he murdered at those shows too. So when you had to follow him, and then you're hearing all these people lying to you, did that change your expectations for what was going to happen for your comedy career? I I had I didn't know what the blueprint was supposed to be, but I had seen people get. Montreal and then everything was great for them and so I kind of my thought process was get new faces and then I didn't have anything after that I didn't know like I I just like oh then they give you stuff Mm -hmm. that's what I thought I didn't know I mean I I don't know how things work and so I so yeah you take general meetings people say a lot of crazy you've probably heard like I mean, people just say whatever they feel like saying in the moment. Dwayne Kennedy said to somebody, uh, it's, it always gets quoted, like, I think that, like, they lied to me to practice, like, a bigger lie they had to tell later. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> to, to paraphrase Dwayne Kennedy. But, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, I, 
I wish that I would have just enjoyed the city and the experience and stuff, but I sat in the, in the, in the waiting room of, uh, what's that? The, the Hyatt. And I just like waited to be discovered by these drunk managers and agents. And, (laughs) you know, it doesn't work that way. I don't know how it works, but it didn't work that way. Yeah. But by the time I started to get to know you, uh, after I'd introduced you to John Mulaney, um, yes, you were you were mainly getting by on uh, TV commercials. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, playing um, the person holding the wrong product in a commercial. That was that's the thing. That's the thing that kept me alive for years. And is that because people thought you looked like Kelsey Grammer, or because people thought you looked like? <laughs> <laughs> or because people thought you looked like Zach Galifianakis. I think that Zach Galifianakis, I don't, but the thing that most people said was Seth Rogen, which that's okay. a type. That's a type. So when I moved to LA, it was a very Judd Apatow, um, schlubby kind of Seth Rogen. People wanted like the Seth Rogeny um, in, I guess, Knocked Up, and mm. or like Zach Galifianakis. People wanted a schlub guy to be like, I don't fucking know. And I was exactly that guy in real life. So that's what I would play. And when, and I think that if you're moving to LA and you figure out who they think you are, you can play with that and you will go far. And instead of saying, no, I am gorgeous or like, no, they're wrong about me. You can also just like um, feed into that because that's what they want. So I sound, very, I sound very bitter, but I, I just, I, I guess I um, am. So yeah. Or cynical. Cynical. Yeah. It's easy but, to be cynical. But, but leaning into it, do you feel like that helped your mental health in terms of being able to survive in the comedy business without having a huge special? Yeah. Treating them. Thing? Yeah. Treating them like they're bad at their jobs has helped my mental state. And I'm sh- maybe m- makes people because they are bad at their job mm-hmm. they're fucking horrible at their jobs and so it would, i mean it's helped me kind of yeah mentally deal with that and it's also like you can coming from chicago where people ironically celebrate their own awfulness i think that that mentality also kind of helped because you know if you can celebrate it you don't feel as bad about it mm-hmm. Did you did you find yourself comparing your path to everyone else? Sure. Blurds. Yeah, sure. And only the people doing better than me, of course. Yeah, I I I think that that's why so many comedians liked Bernie Sanders and like socialism. They hate everyone doing better than them. It's just you know just a the way of you compare yourself. I think everybody does that. You go on social media, you know. I but at the at the same time, if you were like. In 2004, you would have pointed at the open mic and said, who's going to be famous? I would have told you, and I would have been right. You know what I mean? Like, over Thanksgiving, my cousin um, was like, you used to get drunk and be like, Kumail's going to be famous. And I was like, and? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when I was a schlub and stayed on your sofa in Los Angeles, I I distinctly remember we watched... Kumail on his first Letterman. Did we really? That's interesting. That's fun. Yeah, he was great. Yeah. I expect big things out of him. Um, I mean, when I was new, an open micer, 
I, I saw him get off a bus to the open mic. And I remember thinking, holy shit, that's Kumail. I mean, he worked at, I mean, he was just like a, an IT guy at the University of Chicago. Like, no, but I, I saw him and I'm a dork. So I was like, that's Kumail, <laughs> the best comedian in Chicago. <laughs> but I mean, the, you know, we've mentioned some other names, you know, Holmes, uh, Brooks Whelan. Yep. Um, you know, there's TJ Miller and, and Jordan. Yeah. Um, so you've been able to see like, all these other people in your orbit have all these varying experiences with right. the business. Right. I mean, what is that, what has that taught you about what, what's meaningful and what's important? And I guess, well, meaningful, it's all meaningful to me. Like I am, I wrote an entire book. I mean, that's like about, the history of the Chicago alt scene, because I feel like those people are so interesting. And I feel like that time was so like important to me Mm -hmm. as far as like lessons in terms of like, not being like a movie star, like them. I, I don't know if I was, if if I was ever bummed out about it. I wish I was doing better, but all of those, no one really like, jumped over me to do it so all those people were always like ahead of me anyway like right um you know tj and pete holmes and to a certain extent hannibal jumped over everybody um but and then like you know people came later that i didn't really know while i was there like beth stelling or like lisa traeger or drew michael i'm just i i feel like the best i've never been upset about any any of that i think the best policy is to be happy for for people because you get associated with, I mean, all of those coming from that scene. I knew, I guess, I knew that like the bigger those people got, it wasn't going to hurt me to to be also from that scene. And then there's people that like don't even talk about being from Chicago. Like Nate Bergazzi was at those open mics, or Tommy Johnigan was at those, you know, those open mics. I guess mm-hmm. um, I I don't know if it has taught me anything other than like uh, that I was right about it being special when we were there. But what about watching some of those people kind of fall from grace? Oh, Oh, like don't call in a bomb threat on a train. Sure. I I think I already knew that (laughs) some people who got famous in general, and I'm speaking generally, some of this is about Chicago people. And some of this is about just people that I started with in LA who have also gotten wildly famous. Um, They'll make bad, they'll make weird decisions when they while like after they get famous and i'll and i'll say to myself oh no one's told them no since 2008 like multiple two of them have said i'm a rapper now and it's because no one has said like why would anybody tell them no Mm -hmm. you know like look at kanye west now not not a not a comedian but a chicagoan no one's told him no since through the wire. And so and he's like, I'm not taking my medicine. Who's going to tell him no? <laughs> Nobody in his orbit who's going to stay in his orbit. So I guess you got to stay humble in the process. But don't listen. I, at the same time, I was like, I, everyone wants to tell you no. Everybody wants to tell you no. No one told me no till I got a manager. And then I started hearing no. 
I'd be like, can we submit this? And I'd be like, no. I'd be like, if it was me, I would submit this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one told me no until I got a manager. And it was like, I was like, I thought that you guys like said yes. I, I don't know. Th- um, those are agents. Those are agents. <laughs> those are agents. Okay. Managers so, say no, agents say yes. Because oh, well, it's their fake jobs. It, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess don't don't listen to anybody but also like if if don't go don't don't have have people in your life who'll tell you no but don't mm-hmm. but still don't listen to when most people tell you no but it how, also have someone that will tell you no how do you apply your knowledge and love of baseball other than making your cover a baseball card but i know you i know you do you still have a tumbler about baseball or there's not really a tumbler thing or whatever right now. Okay. yeah i it's i i posted on my patreon to people yeah okay uh but i also remember being in your apartment i think that was the first time you showed me the doc ellis lsd yes. animation uh youtube yeah. anyhow but but i know your love of baseball yes do you how do you or do you apply that knowledge and love to comedy and show business? Not really. I mm-hmm. um, not really. I. It's interesting. Every now and then, I'll think of the if I say saber metric. Uh, there's new stats that people use to mm-hmm. to equate value. And sometimes I think like, man, it would be great if they had this for comedy. Like, who's actually getting on base? You know, right. like who's who's overhyped. And, you know, either because, you know, there's marketing and there's like Derek Jeter overrated as fuck. There's stats that prove it. You know Mm. what I mean? Like he's people think that he's the greatest baseball player of all. How many MVPs does Derek Jeter have? Everyone who loves him so much. Oh, zero. Okay, cool. Uh, (laughs) Is is he give was he as good as Craig Biggio or Robin? Yeah, look it up. You can just look it up and be like, Mm -hmm. so this guy has a lot of hype behind him. Right. I wish that there was that for comedy, I think. But hey, I don't know. Yeah, no, I I think about it myself to the point where I now do or for the last several years, I do a, a end of the year podcast with Jason Zinneman, the critic for the New yeah. York Times. Yeah. And I call it the comedy MVPs, where I try to determine... There you and go. I, and I usually have to argue with Jason every year about how do you determine who is the MVP? And, like, what, what does How do you mean? determine? How do like, you determine? What does it mean to be the MVP of a year in comedy? Okay. That's fun. I would listen to that. I would listen, but he would be like, see, I think it was this show I saw at the Staples Center for Netflix. And he'd be like, okay, that's the show that you went to, Jason. Right. But I actually do try to like statistically, well, they, they put out a special here. They had a series. Yeah. They hosted yeah. this award show. Yeah. So Who's your front runner? Of, in terms of the overall, I don't know this year. Because I've also, in the last year, I've also started doing a monthly feature online called, which I'm calling, instead of the monthly MVP, I'm calling the employee of the month. Yes, I said, yes, 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 yes. So I, so I'll go back and look at that, but it's like so varied that I don't know who stands out for the year. But I, I just figured since I know how much you follow baseball. Well, yeah, baseball, the MVP in baseball. So some, 
some people look at it as best player. Some people look at it, they try to equate value. I, and some people just pick a narrative and run with it. And so I think that what you should do if you're looking at in baseball is you should pick your criteria for MVP and then see who fits the criteria rather than the other way around. It drives mm. me insane when people do the other thing. So if you want to pick a person and just create a narrative around them and make an argument for them, do that, but be honest and say that's what you're doing. Otherwise, you'd be like, the MVP of comedy should be this, 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 and this. And then you honestly look and you plug in who did those things and who is those things, and that is your MVP. See, that's that's wise. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's that's what I would tell you about baseball. That's, that's why you're such a hunk, Mike Bridenstine. <laughs> Thank you. So I want to ask about, before I let you go, I want to ask about your podcast, Hunk, because mm-hmm. you started it in 2019, before the pandemic. And then mm-hmm. when the pandemic happened, it turned into a completely other thing. It did. Um, which is yeah. unusual in the realm of comedy podcasts. So tell me about that pivot. Zoom. I've, I learned about Zoom and I'd always wanted to do a panel show, but I didn't have five microphones and like, like hookups to my Zoom H6, the they're both called Zoom, so Jesus. It's <laughs> right. <to> talk about. <laughs> right. The, the, micro, the microphone is called a Zoom, and the, the platform we're speaking on now is also called Zoom, yes. So I, so I wanted to Bill Maher the fuck out of it. I hated online comedy, and it was a way for people, for comedians to be funny in front of an audience without having to do that awkward. I watched so many people try to do monologue jokes in front of the screen. I, I, I sat in on a comedy show that I just was like oh I have a bad connection and I left because it's like this shit sucks but with a panel it worked in my head and so I wanted to figure that out and do a panel show and be around other comedians at the same time it was social it was a way to get laughs I thought it was perfect and my numbers plummeted because nobody was commuting to work (laughs) so I was like this is not working but it turned but it's kind of bouncing it's bounced back and um, it's led, I, I was booking five comics a week. And so it led me to people being like, will you book this show? And so that's, you know, when I, last time I saw you as an example of that. Oh, two so, times the, I saw you. so the two live shows, cause you have yeah. two weekly shows. Yeah, I have flagship at the Glendale room. And I, and I, the one that's been around the longest is microdose at fable. And that sprang directly out of booking five comics a week on my podcast. Yeah. See, so even if the podcast numbers don't hit whatever expectations you have, it's still translated into something. uh, Yeah, Jake Kroger asked me during episode 100, he's like, what do you see yourself on 200? And I was just talking about this. I I wrote a book based off of, interviews that I did for my Patreon and I started booking to yeah so the time's going to go by anyway and as you definitely know stuff just comes out of it that wouldn't have come if you had just been sitting around well obviously this came about uh, through a whole variety of weird circumstances including the aforementioned me sleeping on your sofa back in back in easier times uh, or or different times, or <laughs> or worse times, yeah. But now you've got a new album, and a book is on the way. Yes. So 2023, that's the, the year of Brido. 
Yeah, and I'm dropping and I and I'm dropping an hour special. Uh, is that is the same stuff as the album? But pick up the album on Friday. I need money. (laughs) (laughs) Those those Seth Rogen checks aren't coming in like they used to. Uh, Mike Bernstein, thank you so much. I really appreciate catching up with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I'll have to have you on my panel sometime. Wear your best fedora. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.